Escape velocity. Can we just start by discussing how crazy it is that we have actually just reached episode 15? 15 episodes you of know, this podcast. It seems odd that we didn't note the passing of episode 12, which would have indicated one full year of actually doing something without bailing on it. It's true. It is true. Did we miss a month somewhere? We did miss a month. So episode... So we missed episode... We missed the one year anniversary? When did we start this podcast? We started it in August of 2012 was the first episode. But we didn't do 12 consistent monthly episodes, did we? Yeah, we missed one. Where? We missed one month. Which April? One? April. Was I You away? were busy, you were touring and stuff and we didn't get our shit together. But generally speaking, I think we've been doing all right. But we actually have 15 episodes or is there one episode up there on the site that has nothing on it? <laughs> no, we actually have, 15. after this is done, we will have 15 complete episodes. So how's it going? Now that we are officially in episode 15, what is the latest? What is the latest with you? Holy smokes. When's the last time you smoked crack? Um, shit. It's got to be at least, at least 35 years ago. I think, you know, a lot of people have, people more intelligent than I, or people with access to a larger audience than I have pointed out that uh, it's unfortunate that the downfall, if indeed this spells downfall for uh, Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, which it may well not in some crazy, bizarre universe it that won't. we live in. Um, the fact that it's around drug use yeah. is extremely unfortunate, especially considering, I mean, I think that you and I would probably both agree that decriminalization of illegal drugs is probably a much wiser root for society treating drug addiction as a health issue rather than a criminal issue so the fact that this is all focusing on the fact that this is criminal nature and therefore yeah i don't think it's necessarily the stigma of the drug itself for some people it might be but it's it's more is this guy competent Mm -hmm. clearly he's not but i mean his his voter base is not competent they voted the fucking moron in this guy claims that the only people who get aids are gay people and drug users and women who have sex with bisexual men. <laughs> He's a fucking idiot. He's a yeah. fucking idiot. He tore out bike lanes they had put into the city. He had them torn up. We were talking about this earlier. Is it a fundamental personality trait or some sort of sociopathic or mental illness that allows you to operate in such a strange bubble of reality that you, a person can believe that they are entitled to continue holding you know, esteemed positions where you are supposed to be serving the people. You are the servant. That being the idea that you are working for these people. You are representing them. But could there be a silver lining in that? Could this lead people to talk about drug addiction differently? (laughs) No. Are you fucking kidding me?
I wonder how many of our listeners are familiar with the work of Chris Hedges. Well, let's see. There's 10 listeners. Right. And two of them are you and me. Right. We're familiar with them. Okay. So two. Two. So 20%. 20%. You introduced me to Chris Hedges many years ago. Not personally, just to his work. How did you first hear of Chris Hedges? How did you become a fan of his writings? It's actually a marginally interesting story. <laughs> oh, you said interesting, not funny. Sorry. Well, my dad bought me War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning for Christmas one year. Okay. Back when it came out. And I had no idea who the guy was. I, I don't know why my dad would give me the book because I don't know if he even reads. And or second knows of all, how to read. Yeah. Well, when I saw the book, I just thought, oh, this is, this is my dad's way of introducing a book that apologizes for global war because it war is a force that gives us meaning it didn't necessarily sound like it was used in a pejorative sense right it, it, it could be a, a, a positive explanation yeah, we sh- for we need to engage in war that's what i when i saw the book that's what i thought because it came from my dad who was a fighter pilot during the cold war right and whose job it was as a young man as a teenager was to in the event of a invasion by the soviets of the west and my dad was based in west germany if they invaded, his job under uh, American tutelage was to fly an F-104 starfighter with an American nuclear weapon strapped beneath it over some city in the Warsaw Pact countries, probably in Poland or Czechoslovakia. He has never revealed that. He's actually apparently not allowed to reveal that to this day. He's probably told me more than I'm supposed to know. Right. And drop it on a city full of people drop a nuclear weapon on a city full of families. Yeah. Much to his chagrin now, he doesn't like talking about it and doesn't want, doesn't actually want his grandchildren to know about that. Sorry, dad. They know now. So clearly it was an odd choice to get us a Christmas present from from my dad. And then I read it and it was, I, I realized now in hindsight, my dad has been, rethinking a lot of his life with horror about what he was willing to do mm-hmm. when he was a young man in in the military. Well, I think, it, and in order to hold that position that he did, you have to A, be well indoctrinated into believing that this is the right thing and also tell yourself an entire story that have a whole mythos that allows you to do that and, yeah. you know, sleep at night. He was never as gung-ho as other military guys we knew growing up. But when I when I I've said to him, would you have actually have dropped the bomb? Like, would you have done it? And he said, I didn't give a shit. I didn't give a shit. I was he was a teenager who didn't have the capacity to understand. Yeah, he hadn't grown into being a human who thought about other people as humans. Right. And now he, I think he looks back on that with with a lot of. I think it frightens him that people have this capacity. And probably feels ashamed about it. Anyways, but this is the guy who got me the book. Right. So a, a mildly interesting story about how I was introduced to Chris Hedges. Right, right. And War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning is obviously a somewhat devastating, sobering account of war by Chris Hedges, who as a war correspondent for the New York Times covered many conflicts, right. uh, saw a lot of crazy stuff, and has, I think, a really unique ability to convey the you know, some of the root sort of human emotional trauma and 
simultaneous needs that are fulfilled by you know being in a state of war and what people are capable of and how he sees the same patterns replicated over and over. Well, I think that's what was unique about Hedges at the time because you and I were so used to books by Chomsky or William Blum or whoever the hell it was. Very important books, I should add, but that were essentially laundry lists of the transgressions of the state, right? Right. And this book was more about human nature and how we are completely, all of us are completely subject to falling into these horrible mindsets, these these patterns of behavior that have plagued humanity. I had never really considered or admitted that none of us are immune from this stuff. That right. It, it is, it's something for humanity to keep in check somehow. In a flash, people can turn and do terrible things depending on the circumstances. He talks about conflict in terms of it being an elixir or a, a drug that people mm-hmm. become addicted to in a way that was a turning point for me uh, where I was able to, to understand and concede that again, that none of us are immune from the allure of war, of conflict, of national patriotism, of demonizing the other. We're all capable of it. And it's good to know that because then you can start from there to build institutions that try to keep those things in check about ourselves. You mm-hmm. know, that's, that's the best, the best reasoning for building institutions and legal systems is to thwart the worst in us and bring out the best in us. Well, and this like this is the theme that underlies all of Hedge's work throughout all of his books is you know understanding that you know and he links this to his uh, underpinnings as a seminarian you know with his his education being based in you know religion and talking about how the idea of original sin is you know, to him, not about this thing about making people constantly feel guilty for everything they do. It's about understanding that we cannot eradicate the quote unquote evil within us. You know, and if you, you have to, original sin is about being constantly vigilant against the impulses of death and destruction that we all harbor, you know, even amongst people who think that they're the best people who do no wrong. Right. There can always be an opportunity for it to come out. And so, and I think this is also what, how he describes religion is religion is a system that has sprung up in order to, you know, in its original intent to help human beings navigate that and keep those, keep those impulses, those destructive impulses at bay and other institutions. Right. Can, and then do the same thing. And then that the, the inspiration for that was co-opted. Mm-hmm. Into, like everything else always right, is into being a way to coerce people into doing terrible things doing terrible things <laughs> yeah why are we talking about all this chris hedges came to winnipeg he came to winnipeg recently. canadian dimension brought chris hedges to toronto yeah. winnipeg recently yeah canadian dimension and the uniter anyway so we got a chance we sat down with chris hedges we talked to him about religion we talked to him about the black block the black block we talked to him about best course of action to institute change we talked to chris hedges about a lot of things we did why don't we let the people hear it no i don't think so so chris thanks for taking the time to talk to us tonight you often speak about the myth of human progress this idea that the idea of progress is often what fuels some of the worst aspects of human nature leading to bloodshed and atrocities in the name of civilizing the barbarians or whatnot but others like steven pinker say 
they present a narrative that the world it keeps getting better, we're getting less violent, we're getting more civilized, and that we have some sort of historical amnesia when it comes to the extremely violent daily lives of you know early human history. So what's your take on that? Can you reconcile that at all? Well, I haven't read Pinker's book, but it, it doesn't, historically, I don't know how he can make that argument, because once industrial warfare was created in the First World War, we devised mechanisms by which, in any one instant, thousands of people could be killed without ever even seeing their attackers. Um, I mean, the first day of the Somme offensive by the British, I think they lost 30,000 dead, if I remember correctly. So um, the 20th century has just been a bloodbath. And I don't, I'm not a believer that human nature particularly changes, but the instruments that humans use change. And, uh, you know, would, uh, you know, Genghis Khan have committed genocide on, on, well, maybe, but he couldn't. So I don't buy it. Um, and I think that one of the things I find most frightening is that we have the, the technological advances within the weapons industry are now so extreme that, as we saw in Syria, um, there's almost um, no debate, at least within the circles of power, about dropping, uh, the plan was to drop hundreds of Tomahawk missiles on Syria, each Tomahawk missile carries a 1,000-pound iron fragmentation bomb or 166 cluster bombs. If, and, and the idea was from the eastern Mediterranean, hundreds of these things would be rained down on Assad's military infrastructure with, as they admitted, collateral damage. Um, but really, we're talking about massive civilian casualties, as we have seen in Iraq, as we have seen in Afghanistan. So. Um, the myth of human progress, and Ronald Wright uh, did a nice job in his book, The Short History of Progress, writing about this, is dangerous because it allows us to uh, place our faith and believe in a kind of historical or social inevitability that's just not borne out by reality. And you see it in terms of climate change. People who deal with climate change go in two directions. Either they deny it, or they believe that we can adjust, that somehow technology will save us. And uh, technology is morally neutral. It can be used uh, to enhance life. In case some cases it has, of course, especially things like penicillin. And, uh, but it serves the interests of, of those who uh, deploy it. And right now, technology is in the hands of corporations. I mean, most scientists work for corporations. Uh, and they're figuring out how to frack and how to get the tar sands out and how to drop half billion dollar drill bits into the waters of the summer Arctic ice uh, to make profit off of the death throes of the planet. So um, the myth of human progress is precisely that. It is this belief that of limitless expansion, which is, of course, the engine of capitalism, uh, the idea that there are no limits, that we can continue to commodify and exploit everything, um, and, and we build technological tools that allow us to do that. So when we can't drop drill bits anymore into the ground and suck out oil, uh, we're pumping chemicals and 
high pressure water into the ground to to get uh, tar sands and uh, shale oil out, um, even though it's destroying our water supply. I mean, it, you know, the, the the result is people complain about the price of oil. Wait till they see the price of water. Um, so that is the myth of human progress is something that it's a it's a given that we are always and, and it's also how we define progress we define progress in terms of our own material prosperity but this, possibly also in terms of social say social gains for suffrage for women and, and well, general but, ideas of yeah, justice but I mean the, the social gains are rolled being been rolled backwards I mean you can't even make that argument anymore we live in the most sophisticated security and surveillance state in human history. Dwarfs anything under the Stasi. Uh, the reconfiguration of of the United States and of Canada, where you ship your manufacturing overseas uh, to sweatshops in Bangladesh, where people make 22 cents an hour, prison labor in China, and all you have to do is look around the streets of Winnipeg or look around the streets of Detroit or any city, almost any city in the United States, you see that even that notion that technology and progress has lifted us economically is not true. Um, we are re being reconfigured into an oligarchic system. And uh, in fact, the assaults on the poor, we now in the United States are debating in the House of Representatives about cutting back on food stamps. At the same time that the Fed, the Federal Reserve, announces that rather than scale back on the stimulus plan, it will continue to pump money into Wall Street because they know that once they stop pumping money into Wall Street, we're in trouble. And you have built this system where, I mean, 40 million children in the United States go to bed hungry every night, and yet we're cutting back on the, you know, the, the last line of defense between them and malnutrition, and then turning around and giving trillions of dollars to Citibank and uh, financial firms like Goldman Sachs that borrow money from the Fed at virtually 0% interest, and then these financial firms, especially when you're late on your credit card like I am, will pump it up to 16%. It's, that's not even capitalism. It's just extortion. So um, you can't even make that argument anymore, that we're better off. Because um, those of us who had grown fat off of empire uh, are in fact not being better off, or not better off anymore. Um, unions are broken. Less than 12% of the American workforce is unionized. Wages are not only stagnant but falling. Um, our public schools are being closed. Our libraries are being closed. Our firehouses are being closed. So you can't even make that argument anymore. There's a dominant narrative today that there's this rigid dichotomy between a scientific worldview and a religious worldview. And, you know, never the twain shall meet. Do you think that that's a false dichotomy? Yeah, because, you know, as I speak as a former seminarian, the, I mean, let's take the writers of the, the book of Genesis, who, by the way, thought the earth was flat. Um, they, they didn't understand the process of evolution or the process of creation. Nobody in their time period did. What they were, and what they should be read for, is they're grappling with the purpose of creation. Um, religion and religious, I mean, if you go back to the roots of all religion, it's intertwined with art. I mean, the, in gr ancient Greece, uh, the theater festivals, the three-day theater festivals in which prisoners were actually let out of prison to come see were religious festivals. Um, poetry, music was all intertwined because art, at its best, struggles with what religion at its best struggles with 
and that is those the non-reality based uh, forces that comprise the totality of life. So that's uh, grief, mortality, or the struggle with our own mortality, beauty, love. I mean, Freud said he could write about sex, he could never write about love. Because these are not things that can be empirically measured. Uh, and, and, and art struggles to grapple with these in the same way that religion at its best struggles to grapple with these forces that make a whole or a complete life. And, uh, you know, the, the Buddhists say that uh, you can memorize as many sutras as you want. It will never make you wise. It's only when you get in touch with these intuitive or non, non I don't say irrational, but non-reality-based forces that you are fully human. And so, you know, the, the great religious writers, like the great poets, the great musicians like Beethoven I mean that's that's what they were grappling with and um, you know imperfectly I mean religion even the God God the concept of God is a human construct and religious doctrine and religious ideology are human constructs and you can't get weighed down by them Um, but I think it's important to look at the at the very real forces that these constructs are attempting to articulate and ultimately to cherish. Um, I mean, that's what it means to honor the sacred. And um, I have very little time for institutional religion, but that religious impulse, I think, is important. And, it, you know, I, you know I, I read probably more literature and, and poetry at this point than I read theology. But, for, you know, the purpose or the, what I'm seeking is, is the same. It seems to me that there's kind of a misconception, perhaps amongst atheists and skeptics, about your assessment of atheistic or science-centered worldviews, specifically that you label atheism as no different than any religion and that you equate criticism of religion with racism. Am I well, correct in seeing I, that as a, no, mis, as a misconception? That, I don't amongst, have any problem with atheism. I mean, most of the major philosophical and religious reformers were in their day condemned as atheists from Spinoza to Luther. My problem was with a particular strain of atheism as embraced by people like Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, which for me was just a form of secular fundamentalism, where And that's why, especially in the case of Harris and Hitchens, their politics completely converged with the radical Christian right. Because instead of demonizing Muslims as satanic, they demonized them as barbaric. And fundamentalism can come in any form, including a secular form. It's fundamentalism that I hate. Because it's not only intolerant, but deeply ignorant, and that it it doesn't believe in, you know, I spent seven years in the Middle East, I speak Arabic, I graduated from Harvard Divinity School, both the Muslim world and, you know, the writings of major theologians from, you know, Calvin to Augustine to Bart are what I've read, and Harris and Hitchens and Dawkins and others display the primary characteristic of fundamentalists, which is we don't need to read it. 
they've, they don't know any. I, I, it's, it, you know, for me to, it, watching Dawkins write about religion is like watching me write about biology. You know, having basically just had a high school biology. I don't know what I'm talking about. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. And the whole, and they make a leap. They use the language of scientific rationalism and then make a leap into the irrational. Memes, which are, you know, they don't exist. Memes don't exist. And they're, you know, a creation of sort of Dawkins' imagination. Uh, and then he starts trying to treat memes or ideas like genes. I mean, it's insane. Um, so, I mean, the kind of religion that they hate, I hate. I mean, I wrote a book on the Christian right called American Fascists. I, I don't, that's not the issue. Um, but I worry that, you know, using the language of scientific rationalism, they promote a triumphalism and ultimately a racism that is no different from the Christian right. I mean, that's my critique of, but, you know, atheism I don't have a problem with. Um, most, I mean, the London Review books reviewed my book, Attacking the Atheists, and said, even though he's, referring to me, even though he's a non-believer. I mean, in the eyes of a traditional Christian, I, they wouldn't consider me a believer. I mean, I don't, there's no historical evidence that Jesus existed. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't believe in heaven and hell or angels or anything like that. You were speaking about American fascists. Um, in that book, you spoke about the danger from the Christian right, especially inside the halls of American power. Now that you're almost five years into a secular and perhaps domestically gentler, but arguably internationally more criminal administration, has the danger of a neo-fascist religious state been uh, replaced by the danger of a new totalitarian surveillance state? No, because, and as I wrote in that book, the only way these totalitarian or fascist movements can come to power is in a period of crisis. So right now we have a period of relative stability. But the power elite knows very well what's coming, both in terms of climate change and in terms of the economic unraveling. And they are preparing the mechanisms for internal control to deal with it, both in terms of wholesale surveillance, monitoring, eavesdropping, photographing, you know, on a scale unseen in human history, coupled with uh, the creation of militarized, omnipotent police forces that can do anything to you they want under the law, it, whether it's kicking down your door in the middle of the night or beating you unconscious on the street just because they feel like it. They already have those powers. That's not yet been wedded to an ideology. In a moment of crisis, it becomes wedded to uh, an ideology which, which will probably come out of the Christian right. Uh, because if you, if you see widespread resistance, then, uh, as for instance with Occupy, um, then the counterweight, which has always historically been true, will be classes that are, are often as marginalized economically, um, but embrace this binary view of the world. And, and, you know, vigilante violence is usually tolerated, even organized by the state, but carried out by rogue elements within the state. Um, so in America, especially, which is a gun culture and a very violent society and has a long tradition of vigilante violence, um, you know, should there begin to be serious opposition, let's say from the left, um, will willingly employ and even empower um, these radical Christian forces on the right that have infused the nationalism 
American nationalism with the iconography and language of the of the Christian religion, which is always a recipe for fascism. So, I no, I worry tremendously that, and these people are utterly cut off from reality. I mean, they are hermetically sealed within their own systems of indoctrination, Christian radio, television. We don't see it. I mean, if the New York Times ran an honest book list, you know, for the top ten books, uh, it, they'd all be Christian books. I mean, right-wing Christian books. Um, it's a really dangerous force, and uh, and in a time of distress, uh, will become happily become a very willing tool of a very a very repressive state mechanism. Assuming there's no crisis before the next election, um, you've written before that electoral democracy in the states is currently a sham. Do you think there's a good reason, nonetheless, to organize behind progressive third-party candidates, either here in Canada or the U.S., or should all the efforts be directed towards grassroots campaigns and community organizing? Well, I always vote third-party. I have since 2000. I've voted for Nader 2000, 2004, and 2008 when I wrote Nader's speeches for him. In the last election, I voted Green, but as a kind of opposition. But I think to somehow place your faith in the electoral system is very naive. So I, I, I certainly would always vote for third parties, um, but I don't think, you know, that it's, it's just a way to register a kind of protest vote or a disapproval or begin to suck as many people we can out of the mainstream. But it isn't going to, you know, the system's so gained. In the states, it's all gerrymandered. I mean, they're all safe districts. You can, they're all working for the same. I mean, there is no way within the American political system to vote against the interest of Goldman Sachs. You can't do it. So, yeah, we should all vote third parties. We should all begin. But, but we aren't going to solve this process through electoral means. Related to that, uh, in the death of the liberal class, you describe the failure of the liberal institutions, which have traditionally blunted the sharp edges of capitalism. So do you think now it's important to try to build those institutions back up for the people who actually need them day to day um, and maybe to you know, lay a more stable ground on which to build a movement? Or since those institutions are, in fact, what has allowed capitalism to continue so long, is it short-sighted folly to push for their rebuilding? I mean, the collapse of liberal institution means only that the system's broken. Uh, It means that the safety valve by which incremental or piecemeal reform was once made possible is no longer functional. And, and that's because of two things. One is the destruction of radical movements that essentially pressured the liberal elite, the liberal capitalist elite to respond. Um, and the hollowing out of those liberal institutions which was very short-sighted on the part of corporations because what they didn't understand is that it was that liberal class that kept a kind of balance. So when capitalism uh, breaks down in the 1930s, you have the traditional liberal class embodied in Roosevelt creating the New Deal. And as Roosevelt says, his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism. So uh, we need to rebuild the radical movements. And the failure on the part of the left is that they forgot, historically, that it's not our job to take power. We, we, We will never take power. It's our job to keep those in power frightened of us. That's how unions work. That's how radical movements like the Wobblies work. That's our job. And so when you have the New Deal, Roosevelt is just stealing the, you know, all the ideas from the Progressive Party, which is fine. Um, but we don't have the radical movements and we don't have a liberal class. So you know, I'm all for rebuilding the radical movements, not for rebuilding liberal institutions, which have been pretty much bought off and destroyed from the church to the university to the press. 
to the Democratic Party, or in the case of Canada, the Liberal Party. About a year ago on this show, we had a discussion about your debate with Brian Traven from CrimeThink mm-hmm. uh, about the presence of black blocks at some of the Occupy protests and your cancer in Occupy article specifically. We are just wondering why it was important to you to write that piece and then engage in that debate and maybe see what your takeaway was from that experience. Well, I, I come out of the old anarchist tradition, Kropotkin, Bakunin, Emma Goldman, who would have never embraced the black bloc. The idea that a feral or spontaneous acts of vandalism, violence. And I think sometimes people within movements are naive about how heavily we are monitored and infiltrated. And they figured out, as they did with Occupy, all the weak spots of Occupy to destroy it. For instance, they knew they could overload the system. So as soon as uh, internal security knew that, they, uh, prisoners who were released from Rikers would get driven right down to Zuccotti Park. Homeless people would get driven to Zuccotti Park. Um, they understood, and you know, Kropotkin actually writes about this, about the idea of consensus. Kropotkin writes, will work in small numbers, but in- engenders paralysis in large numbers. So as soon as you have 4,000 people in Zuccotti Park in a general assembly and one person can block, um, you can be damn sure you know, the un- undercover guy from the NWPD is there. You know, they, they figured out, and we, you know, we have to be smart about how we fight back because they are working. I think, you know, we have no idea the resources that they have to, to infiltrate, monitor, and control the time. And I, I don't have a problem with the black bloc necessarily, although I never understood why they were smashing windows in Oakland. If they want to smash windows, why don't they go up the road to La Jolla where Romney lives and smash his windows? I'm all for that. Um, but don't smash the windows of poor people who run coffee shops in Oakland. It doesn't make any sense. That's our base. That's the people we're supposed to protect. That's the people we're supposed to build alliances. And they ended up totally alienating the African-American community in Oakland, which is probably the most politicized leadership in the United States and has fought as valiantly as any leadership against police brutality, repression, so, and I have friends like Ishmael Reed who live in Oakland, and I would talk to them, and I was in Oakland. Um, I don't like the hypermasculinity of it. I don't like hypermasculinity coming out of war. Uh, you know, that tough talking crap. Um, I, you know, every time I ran into the black bloc, it was largely a white male middle class movement. Um, and they were all wearing, like, you know, by the time you added up their knee pads and elbow pads, about $600 worth of equipment. Um, so I'm all for anarchism, but um, the black bloc strikes me as nihilism, not anarchism. And if we can't build a mass movement that can begin to draw hundreds of thousands of people into the street, we're finished. And, and they played in, and, and the, the primary goal of the security and surveillance state is to demonize the movement, number one, and make people frightened of it. And the black bloc were a gift from heaven them. Um, and I just thought, you know, you know, in Zuccotti we had, we didn't have much of an issue with the black bloc. They were such a small minority, they really couldn't do anything. But, you know, you have undocumented workers in there who, if they get picked up, you know, they may be, the, you know, they may never see their family again. You have people in wheelchairs. You have mothers with children. 
And, you know, if you start provoking incidents with the police and these kids run, they're the ones who bear the brunt. They never asked for it. That's not why they're there. And I think what really fundamentally scared the state was that Zuccotti was a mainstream movement. And you saw it every weekend with mothers and fathers from New Jersey with their kids would show up. And so in, in all forms of resistance, there is a place. And there's certainly a place for the black bloc. But I think my greatest frustration is when they would talk about diversity of tactics. I'm all for diversity of tactics, but there, as soon as the black bloc shows up, there's only one tactic. That's their tactic. And that's just not fair, and it's not right. And, um, and, and I think that we've got to be as strategic and tactical and smart as we can, because there are tremendous amounts of state resources uh, you know, in terms of analyzing the movement, looking, they, that's what they're doing to us. So, um, you know, I probably shouldn't have used the word cancer because the states use that word to... So if I had to write it over, I probably... I think everything else I would have left in it. I might not have used that word. Um, and I think finally, you know, as a writer, the moment I need the adulation of a group, I'm finished as an intellectual. In the moment I need to go through Zuccotti Park and every, have everybody tell me how wonderful I am, I'm, I'm done. I, I have to be as fierce and independent as I can. And, and in that sense, you know, the lie of omission for me is still a lie. You know, people say that I triggered a kind of tension within the movement over that. And that's not true. The tension was already there. I just gave voice to it. I gave voice to what a lot of people felt, but they weren't willing to say. And so around the country, you were having discussions about violence, nonviolence, and Chris Hedges, which was fine. So then the people who are trying to build the movement can say, well, he went too far, he's an asshole, or whatever they want to say. That's fine. That's my job. I'm not running for anything. I'm not trying to make anyone like me. I don't, I don't ever want to get into that role. Uh, in terms of the debate, I mean, I think my frustration, I, I, he was a nice guy, Brian, um, and respectful, and, you know, and I'd certainly do it again. But I wished it was more of a debate about ideas. I think it ended up being a debate about anecdotes. Um, and, you know, originally we were going to try and do it with Graeber, but Graeber didn't want to do it. So, but, I, you know, there's a lot we have to learn. I mean, in, in, I, I agree with the anarchist perception that power is the problem. I agree with that. That is certainly where I come from. And that both as, you know, somebody who engages in activism and as an intellectual, I believe in perpetual alienation from power. It doesn't matter who has power. And that is really anarchist at its core. But that doesn't preclude being strategic, being tactical, being smart. Um, and, and, you know, we're trying to build a movement of resistance. We're not trying to build something that's cathartic for, you know, alienated white guys from Eugene, Oregon. I mean, that's really not the purpose of this movement. And there are a lot of things that we're going to have to do that are not really comfortable. Getting arrested is not a pleasant experience. I don't like it. I'm old. I don't want to go to jail. I'll go to jail. I don't like it. And I think that um, my frustration with them is that, you know, it was all about emotional catharsis rather than thought. And we're going to have to get really, really smart if we have any chance. And, you know, every day we go forward in terms of just the ecosystem, there's less and less chance at all. Thanks, Chris. Really yep. appreciate you taking the yeah, time. Sure.
So that was our historic interview with Chris Hedges. Was it historic? Well, it did happen in history, I guess. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on on uh, his responses? Yeah. Do you? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I'll agree with you. Be easier for me. I guess what I was trying to get at with uh, the question about the science versus religion mm-hmm. dichotomy, which I I don't think he totally answered, is that generally in the discourse uh, around atheism and and religion and how that relates to how we engage with the world and politics, it's set up as an either or proposition. Mm-hmm. And this is especially put forward by a lot of like the more hardcore atheist voices these days. And he provided a good explanation of, you know, how he thinks religious thought is important and how it's tied to art and just explaining the more unknowable things about the world. But he didn't really speak to how you can mingle the two. I think probably because to him, it's just entirely obvious that there are real facts about the world that that are knowable and testable and that is science. And there are intangible things that nonetheless exist that cannot be explained away by chemical processes and you know they're we're not going to map human emotions into some sort of matrix that we can test and understand or Or maybe we will or if you could it wouldn't necessarily mean anything for how we operate right right but i guess i hoped that he would maybe elaborate on that a little more because it's i think it's obviously something that he's thought a lot about as as someone who describes himself as an atheist as i do i feel like a lot of atheists as you say put that too much at the top of their list of things to be and uh if that's your only battle if that's your main battle you you're missing out on way too much more important stuff Mm -hmm. i think i think it's a worthy discussion but uh there's something so smarmy i've been smarmy about religious beliefs in the past, but it's so less important to me now to worry about if somebody believes in thing the supernatural. Well, it still seems, I mean, it seems silly to me, but I understand that and sympathize that people can have intuitions that you can't argue someone's deeply felt intuition away. I also think one of the disconnects as well, I think amongst, you know, the, the hardcore atheist strain is that fundamentally they actually believe that if there was no religion in the world then people wouldn't do bad things to each other you see it time and again like even like that dawkins documentary called the root of all evil saying that religion is the root of all i mean it's crazy it's crazy it and i think this is where in the fundamental understanding that informs all of hedge's work that none of us are infallible all of us have the ability to do terrible things. A force like, say, organized religion that can enable some of those things doesn't, it's not the creator of it. Right. It's, there are, we are surrounded by enablers. It's a permutation. It's a, a permutation of human nature. Yeah. And when you finally realize that, because for years I compartmentalized religion as that too, you know, like if we got rid of that, we'd get rid of so much stuff, so Mm -hmm. much war, but it's not really about that. Those are just, it's just the way people excuse it. Fellow atheists, don't get a stick up your ass about other people's spirituality. If they have similar goals and values as you, I say this as somebody who has done that. Don't do it. And don't try to use 
the metric of whether one is an atheist or religious as your fundamental baseline for yeah. understanding the world around you. And, and to dis- it is a poor tool to and do to, that. Yeah, discount everything that someone else does if they're religious. Being guilty of it. Yeah. Not going to do it Same anymore. Here. Tired of it. Tired of that shit. Done with that. No, not going to do that anymore. No, I'm not. I'm forever sorry for that. All I can do is apologize. I think, you know, I, I admit that I criticized people with spiritual beliefs. Probably one of my drunken stupors. And all I can do, it is what it is. And you know what? All I can do is move on. Let's get back to work. Let's get back. To, I've got phone calls to make. <laughs> Something else interesting in, in Hedge's uh, answer to a question regarding strategy going forward was uh, his thoughts on the electoral process mm-hmm. specifically how you know he views it that you know the the left should not think we are going to take power right uh, because in his view we will never but that we should be a, a constant threat a constant threat you know fighting a constant battle against the prevailing order in order to both try to get these incremental gains that serve the population and the planet and also to continue to articulate a vision uh, for something better. But what? why articulate the vision when things are so bleak that there will never, people with vision will never take power? Well, because the they won't take power because ultimately it's the power structure mm-hmm. that is the problem. So it would be a much like we discussed with Robin Hanel last episode. You require the fundamental system change in order for these values of justice and environmental sanity to take hold. So to think that we will take power within the current rubric right. is, is delusional because the current rubric will not allow these ideas to take root uh, in the echelons of power. So what Hedges is saying is in the interim, within this context, yes, our job is to be a threat. Yes, our job rather is to be than, the agitators. Rather than using our time and energy to become part of the power structure exactly but also making the point that listen i'll you know he's saying i'll go out and i'll support a third party every time right you know i will go and i'll put in my vote if nothing else just to register you know my dissent that i am going to take my five minutes and put that behind put that behind the most progressive candidate mm-hmm. or party possible yeah since um, it does it only does take five minutes to do something like that generally yeah you don't have to invest an entire, like all your time in organizing behind a candidate or whatever, which I think that I think I, I answered our question very well. I think the point is that if, if you're already working to build something better, that's not part of this current power structure, it only takes five minutes to go cast a vote against the prevailing parties. Yeah. And on the other hand, if all you're doing is taking five minutes to vote and expect any change from that, you're a fucking moron. Right, right. And which is why some people just don't vote. Yeah, which it, which is interesting because there's been a lot made lately of this. Uh, have you seen this Russell Brand thing? Com- British comedian Russell Brand. A little bit, yeah. I'm not as familiar with him as I probably should be, as I'm not a real pop culture kind of guy. But I have seen his BBC interview, which made the rounds on the social media networks. Yeah. So he was. I mean, the short the short version is he was asked to guest edit the New Statesman magazine. And I guess he was allowed to choose the theme. Uh, he chose revolution as the as the theme, and he, boring. 
Yeah, very boring. He wrote an editorial, which is actually, I think, pretty good. He's an excellent writer. He is very... Flowery. Mellifluous. Verbose. Alliterous. Interesting. Occasionally distastefully sexist. See, I didn't see too much of that. I mean, it's pretty innocent in the article I, I read. In, in the, there's a Lori, a Lori Penny article that kind of responds to it. Yes. Where she, she talks about sometimes he's viciously sexist, she says. I've never yeah, and some of his stand-up. And- see, I don't know. I've never seen any of that stuff. I don't know anything about it. All I know is the BBC interview mm-hmm. and, and that article. And, I, and it is obviously he's playing up his... His persona. His sexual bravado, which, yeah. you know, it's, it seems pretty innocent to me. But if there is more to that, if he actually is in his stand-up and stuff, treating women like they're afterthoughts in terms of where we go from here, then that's just, obviously, it's lame and pretty predictable. But other than that, it's, I think it's kind of an interesting novelty to have a guy like that who appears to legitimately have a correct analysis of the global capitalist system mm-hmm. and speaks out against it while at the same time being this living clown celebrity. Right. It's kind of funny, but you don't need more of them. I, I just want to put it out there for everybody. I don't know much about this guy, but for everybody who likes Russell Brand, we don't need another one. So don't fucking <laughs> try to be another one of those guys. You need All you need is one. Yeah. We yeah. don't need everybody fucking making politics sexy like fucking <laughs> bands have tried in the past and sickens everybody with that stupid shit. But I think... Uh, I, don't, I can kind of relate to that guy a little bit. <laughs> well, there's a lot of similarities in your fashion, your lifestyles, <laughs> your celebrity status, and your uh, your popularity with the ladies. Well, I think in the, in the small sampling of Russell Brand I've had so far, I don't find anything too offensive. Right. So I'm going to avoid his stand-up stuff. It's sort of right. like Joe Rogan. You know, right. I, some, Sometimes I hear him and I'm, I'm, I'm mildly interested in what he has to say. And then I watch some of his stand-up or some of these comments on on feminism and I just it's like fucking I want to throw the baby out with the bathwater you know right because it's just too stupid so but that's par for the course for most men I guess that's true so the reason I bring up brand in, in this context is that in this uh, this BBC interview and, and in this article one of the points that he makes kind of more strongly is that he's never voted he doesn't vote he doesn't believe anybody should vote quoting a a famous intellectual voting will only encourage them. That's not a famous intellectual. That's a comedian. Billy was it Connolly. A comedian? Okay. That's who he quoted in the article. Was it? Okay. Do we know his name? Billy Connolly. Was it Billy Connolly? Yeah. Did you read the article? I did. I thought, wasn't Billy Connolly saying that he was actually, he wanted to get involved in politics or something? No, that was uh, Eddie Izzard. I thought he was saying both of them were. No. Oh. And so because this is, a point he made in, in, in this editorial that of course has been what most of the media who have been covering this have pounced on, you know, with the predictable comments about, you know, if you don't vote, you have no right to an opinion right. uh, essentially, which is obviously nonsense, but I do think it is a, an overly simplistic and what he's saying, what, what, what he's Brent? saying, like, I, I think as a black and white broad rule you can't i mean you should apply analysis to each circumstance in order to make a decision about how you want to spend that five minutes of your time whether i actually i don't see how people not going and voting can ever be distinguished from either disinterest or protest or laziness 
or forgetfulness but the, or but it, like it, it, the powers that be don't look at voting numbers and think oh well wish more people came out they don't care they don't give a fuck if you don't vote so whereas if you go out and take that five minutes to support the party that actually only gets one percent of the vote and is advocating green policies and progressive taxation right but if, he, if all those people who are not voting in in quote-unquote protest would just take five minutes and do that instead mm-hmm. not vote for the the dominant major parties where there's not a dime's worth of difference between them you know but actually put it towards because there are in every election there's like there's socialist parties there's green parties there's all these niche parties and most of them at least have at least some interesting things in their platform and if you want to just take the opportunity to put your support behind some of these ideas at least it shows something, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and maybe the system isn't going to stick around just because you did that. I think he's got a good point. I mean, I, I, I personally walk down the street over to the fucking old folks home where they have our, our ballots. And I always just mark an X on the most, the least asshole person or the most progressive person that's, that's running in, whether it's a provincial civic or federal election just because it's five minutes away just like as you're describing but i totally see what he's saying Mm -hmm. i totally am i am very happy that somebody from the upper echelons of celebrity is saying this yeah that's true is is saying what people who feel disenfranchised think about the whole system yeah i agree that it's refreshing to see what in the mainstream is considered an unthinkable position because the process of electoral democracy is held sacrosanct in mainstream media. And, and it's and, refreshing to see that shat on wholly. But I'm not totally convinced that it's, it is anecdotal, the idea that the reason people don't vote is because, well, they've seen the truth of the system and they know it doesn't work for them. There's no, I mean, it's just an idea that you can you can see how it could be true well it is true it's totally true but how what what, based on if people were engaged in society engaged in in if we had a culture where people were encouraged to be engaged in how society operates they'd go and vote but they don't look at rob ford look at look at everybody's a, a shyster they're all liars and thieves everybody does know this everybody knows it every you do not know that they're all opportunists looking to just clamber up their career ladder from Thomas Mulcair to Stephen Harper to they're all of them every one of them every one of them hey bud hey Francis do you mind if we we're gonna finish up some a discussion here okay okay all right see you buddy I do walk the five minutes and go vote for the for the fringe parties because because I am privileged and I'm just hoping something better happens than what's really coming down the pipe. I guess my point is I don't see how they're mu- those things are mutually exclusive. But it's it's not mutually exclusive. It's it's uh it's well it's the degree of rage that people have mm-hmm. about the system. The degree of despair and malaise. If if you already feel humiliated and ripped off by society, why go fucking vote for any of these jackasses? Why participate in the system they impose on, upon us? It makes sense. Like, I understand why people say, fuck this bullshit. I go and participate in it 
fucking intermittently with very little interest, but I do just to register a fringe opinion within mm-hmm. that system. But I know it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to make a difference. That's his point. I don't begrudge anybody for not voting. If your reasons are you think the system stinks because the system fucking stinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think they should be browbeaten into going to five minutes to vote. No, for- no, I don't, I don't think they should. I don't think they should. But I think there are circumstances where it would be, there are worse ways to I, spend the amount of time it takes and for, for the potential gains for yourselves or for but the smart people. But, but, but truly, the smarter call, given the state of the planet, is revolution. It's the smarter call. Yeah, but it's not going to happen any faster if you don't vote either. Not voting isn't going to bring the revolution quicker. So if you're going to start a revolution in the time it takes you to go and vote once every couple years or four years... Then do that instead, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, hey, for sure. Revolutions come. You don't know. You can't predict them. Yeah, they come. People find. Look at Idle No More. Who knew that was coming? Just came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. They're not going to the fucking ballot box. They didn't go vote for Thomas Mulcair to make that happen. No. Doing it themselves. Yes, that is that is what needs to happen. Oh, so we agree. We do agree. I thought we were disagreeing. But yes, overall, good interview. I'm happy with how that turned out. And there were actually a couple of points in that lecture that we thought, uh, which was also recorded by Canadian Dimension, mm-hmm. that we thought maybe were of, would be of interest. Yeah. Some good touching off points. Well, one that stood out to me was this. Now, there's a writer that I like uh, very much named Dwight McDonald, who's not read a lot anymore, although any of you who know Chomsky uh, will know that uh, McDonald, after the war... Uh, after World War II, published for five years a magazine called Politics, which never had a circulation above 5,000. There's a wonderful essay by uh, McDonald called Mass Cult, Mid Cult, where he argues um, that one of the failures of the left is that they try and dumb themselves down to reach a wide popular audience. And he said that's a mistake. Um, You know, Marshall McLuhan gets it many years later, that, that the medium, you can't let the medium dictate what your message is. And, 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 and if you're going to deal in serious ideas, um, it means that you are probably not going to reach a mass audience. But it, that doesn't matter. It matters who you reach. And who was reading politics assiduously as a young man but Noam Chomsky? And Chomsky credits his political awakening to McDonald's magazine. So why did we think that was an interesting snippet? Yeah, I think there's a, maybe an internal struggle trying to decide on those very questions. How, where is that line between mass appeal and achieving your intended effect? If, you know, if Rage Against the Machine, to completely date myself in my analogy, sells 10 million records, does that mean you're making 10 million politically radical, educated people? Or does it just mean that it becomes a, a wash of information that just has no real impact as opposed to whereas if you have you know a small dedicated following and and you can speak in a less dumbed down manner and i don't think it has to do just with content either it can be in your aesthetic presentation it can be in not having to fear alienating certain segments of of uh, people Derek you indicated that you were interested in Hedge's answer in regards to a question 
regarding Idle No More. I was interested in that. Which is interesting to me because around the same time, Noam Chomsky made headlines throughout the social media networks for his comments on the Idle No More movement. Did he not? That's correct. So let's listen to what Hedges had to say because you were so fucking interested in it. Okay. The destruction of indigenous cultures was not simply about the theft of land and resources, but about destroying a competing ethic. Um, and capitalism, which at its core is about exploitation, can only justify itself by what it's set against. Um, and it's in the course of the book, it didn't make it into the book, it's, you know, you have to edit out, but uh, I went and got copies of Marx's notebooks uh, because Marx had made detailed notes on uh, the self-governance of the Iroquois um, and drew tremendously from indigenous cultures in his formulation of communism because it is the antithesis of capitalism. If you are a leader within an indigenous society and you hoard everything for yourself, you're detested. If you are an indigenous society and you don't honor the sacred, which of course embodies the natural world itself, um, uh, you're disconnected from the community. Everything within the community is communal. And uh, and I think part of, especially uh, the railroad barons and the the mine mine interests and the timber merchants uh, who would send in cavalry units. I mean, Custer was, before he went to the Little Bighorn and got what he deserved, uh, had been sent into the Black Hills and, with a huge expedition that had found gold. And the Black Hills had been deeded uh, under treaty uh, to, uh, to the Lakota. Uh, and once they found the gold, uh, they took it away from them. Uh, that, that, uh, but I think that, you know, we saw with, throughout the Americas uh, up to 95% of the indigenous cultures were eradicated. And I, and I think that competing ethic um, was something that uh, capitalism sought to snuff out. Um, so it wasn't just about theft. So yes, I uh, look at Idle No More, at the indigenous communities, especially if we don't radically reconfigure our relationship to each other and to the natural world, very, very soon we're finished. So there you go. Two white guys said natives are doing the right thing. Finally, someone tells First Nations people that they're they're on the right track. <laughs> but I think this is this is particularly prescient right now because I don't know more movement in Canada that you know kind of picked up December 2012, January 2013. So over the over the previous winter, it kind of picked up steam and it seemed like there was kind of a a lull through the spring and summer. But you know, I think what a lot of people in the community are talking about is refocusing that energy into not just these sort of mass protests, but in rebuilding their own communities and in rebuilding themselves as nations, uh, which is why, you know, recently I don't know more has kind of morphed into what is being called the indigenous nationhood movement. Mm-hmm. They actually just launched a website, which I would encourage our listeners to check out. It's called nationsrising.org, And, you know, just looking at their statement of, principles on the website you know it's very clear that right up there in the list is talking about you know how the indigenous people of north america 
have to you know take charge of being a, as they have been historically before colonization stewards of the natural world stewards of the environment you know and they obviously want their allies in the settler and immigrant communities to take part in that with them because capitalism is not getting the job done in taking care of the planet and so i think you know when hedges is talking about colonization also being about extinguishing this alternative model Mm -hmm. you know this is what he's talking about how there is a different way to do things but it doesn't mean that the protests are stopping because also related to this is the um elsa book took first nation Mm -hmm. protesting the exploration into shale gas natural gas fracking Mm -hmm. in new brunswick up here in canada again something like two-thirds of people surveyed in Atlantic Canada amongst both First Nations and, you know, other communities, they're opposed to natural gas fracking, mm-hmm. you know, but it's the it's the First Nations in Elsa Booktook who are standing up and saying, this is a Texas company, this SWN Resources, is coming up and doing seismic testing exploration for to start fracking, and it's the First Nations who are saying, no, number one, we never ceded this land under the Peace and Friendship Treaties, and we're not going to let you risk our groundwater and the environment with this risky and destructive technology to just pull more fossil fuels out of the ground when they should actually just be staying down there. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, I, I don't know the exact number, but there was multiple municipalities, white towns that had enacted moratoriums in their communities against the fracking but they, the provincial government was just ramming it through anyways. Mm-hmm. And so the white people, the settlers, didn't want it. The company comes in and starts doing it anyways. And First Nations people get blamed when for resisting. And they yeah. bring out snipers because it's First Nations people. You know? Yeah, I mean, for people who are, who are unaware with, with uh, what went down, I mean, this was, a, this was a nonviolent blockade and the government brought in... RCMP with assault rifles, attack dogs, tear gas, rubber bullets, and there were snipers mm. surrounding the encampment in the field. Like, it was totally crazy. It looked like a training exercise to me for something. Yeah. For more that's coming down the pipe. I think I think people should go back and listen to our the, the episodes with Wob Canoe and Leanne Simpson mm-hmm. for more, I think, important context for what Hedges talks about in this speech and for what Chomsky was talking about in Montreal. I think those are two of our more interesting and important. How my society's wide while half of my man is stolen, the other half will be on a diet. Now we got riots and we got lawyer client privilege and we got CNN film footage of that flooded village. Got profuse dose of emotion spillage. You should feel it, thrill it. Afford the media mogul villains now. Did you notice the transition from communism into Islamic terrorism? Not television, shit's just a mental prison. You got the great six diction dictating your vision of the world and of the earth and of the self. In effect, tell you what depths you may delve now. Well, over the ice, pray tell. Hell yes, the shit's so matted with crap from the Ass, not class clash and this distribution of wealth. They quell a revolution with TV 
trees and couches, no doubt. Ha ha, they fucked our air, land and water. Derek, it looks like we've come to the end of episode 15 of Escape Velocity Radio, our monthly podcast. Yeah! It'll be another month till we see everybody. Woohoo! Those who can't wait 30 days, give or take 10 days, for us to reappear in your lives should tune in to another podcast called Citizen Radio. Heard of it. You can go to their site at wearecitizenradio.com and check out Jamie and Allison because they fucking do this kind of thing every day. Every day. Every day. That's every weekday. Every weekday. Every weekday. There's a new episode. It's incredible. It is It is incredible. And they're, uh, they're pretty funny. Pretty funny duo. They cover some interesting topics. Yeah. So while you're waiting 30 days for us to come back, go check out Citizen Radio. Recommend it. Thanks for tuning in to episode 15 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by Lee Harvey Oswald. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio. To join the discussion about this particular episode, there will be no discussion. Or to check out the show notes, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on various social media networks works that I will not name. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. The last days, the forces wait in the bays of Kuwait with ancient hate in the states and the grudges that you deists and the Muslims, scuds and floods and the earth crumbling, millions die in hunger, food we distribute so improperly whilst monopolies keep raping all of the foreign property, my eyes.